This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, this is Eric. Welcome to the lucky number 13th episode of Climify for season three. Dr. Katie Camella-Mella joins me today from her research facility in Hawaii. I was introduced to Dr. Camella-Mella by my friend who teaches with her at Arizona State. Her research there at the Center for Global Discovery and Conservation Science focuses on historical and contemporary Native Hawaiian forest plant gathering practices. And it continues to expand policy that includes community input with forest restoration management. Her work falls under many drawdown solution sectors, including land sinks, forest restoration, and protecting indigenous people's rights. Katie is doing wonderful and important work, and I learned much from her during our discussion that you'll hear today. My most important takeaway was how important it is to recognize that we are part of nature, not separate from it, and that we need to spend more time cultivating our relationship with nature by watching, listening, and experiencing it more. For me, that's a work in progress, but one that I hope to become better at, and I hope you do too. My name is Katie Comella Mella. I'm currently an assistant professor at Arizona State University in the School of Ocean Futures and a researcher in the Center for Global Discovery and Conservation Science located in Hilo, Hawaii. And you can find me online at katiecomelamela.com. K-A-M-E-L-A-M-E-L-A.com. Katie, thanks for coming on Climify, and I'm honored that you said yes to being on the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm really excited to be here today. I was watching and listening to you online, and, and one of my favorite things that you did was your TEDx talk from 2021, and you started that talk with with a, a meditation as I, I, I reviewed it, and it was about being in the forest. And I really just, lo- first of all, I love being in the forest. So I, I truly enjoyed the way that you did that. And, and I'm wondering if, if maybe if you're willing to start our conversation today with a similar meditation. Sure. Yeah, it's always good for us to connect to places that we're familiar with and bring them into our current space. And it'll, it'll be a good setup to build upon what we're, we're going to be sharing later on. Yeah, so um, you can get comfortable, find a good seated position or lie down and just be present. Listen around to where you're at. And when you get comfortable, we're going to go to a forest area that you're familiar with, or if you haven't been there yet and you wanna go, we're gonna go and visit this place and give you a moment to situate what you're looking at, maybe how it feels outside, if it's sunny or cloudy or Maybe there's a light wind. And just be present 
in this forest that you know or want to visit and observe your surroundings. Do you hear anything? Do you feel anything? What's coming into your vision as you look around? And so now that you have the feeling and the sight, we're going to return back to where we are and think about again how it felt, what you're looking at, and reflecting on Did you see anybody else while you were there? Did you see any animals or people? Were they passing you by or taking care of their area? And so that's how we're going to close that session. And um, many times when we think about going to the environment, envisioning going into forest places, many times people only think of themselves alone. And maybe one out of a hundred people see people there. And so hopefully moving on in our talk story today, we'll, we'll be able to get more into why it's important to see ourselves in the forest and our relationship personally, as well as our relationship to communities that use the forest, seen and unseen people and animal people. I usually meditate actually right before I do an interview and today I didn't and uh mm-hmm. and I was looking forward to to you leading one and uh having having to hear and, and imagine being in that forest I, I went to um Colorado in in when you were talking and I did imagine myself alone so I don't know what necessarily that means but um, usually when I'm there, I'm hiking with family and they're, they're always hiking way too fast. And I just wish, can we slow down? Can we look at things? Can I sit mm-hmm. down it? And they just want to get it over with and hike as fast and far as they possibly can. And so maybe that's why I imagined myself alone while, while you were talking. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Most people envision themselves alone in the forest, which is very peaceful. And to me, it talks to building that relationship with that environment, being more aware, raising awareness to the senses and those rhythms while observing your own personal rhythm. Mm-hmm. And then my experience is people who see people in the forest work a lot with communities in the forest. Oh. 
it. So it's it's also introduction to this is how we experience the forest um, from our personal perspective, as well as bringing in this other experience that may not be thought of as frequently. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, I imagine uh, taking a guess that as you work a lot with communities, do you you see people in the forest when you meditate about it? Um, that's It's kind of how I got into this whole thing was when I was doing watershed management training, we would go into the forest and I would see people in the forest, but you wouldn't, that weren't on trails. Um, They're like hunting or fishing or doing some other gathering activity. And when I got more into my work, a lot of the work that is done in the forest with gathering practices, and we'll talk more about that, uh, are unseen. So the forests that people walk through are curated without their awareness. And it isn't unless you understand those patterns, you can see people's movements there. Yeah. So what what then do forests mean to you? Well, where I live, it means water. Uh, it means life. We live in the middle of the ocean in Hawaii, and so the forests capture our water. They hydrate our uh, aquifers, and besides that, give life to things not just in the forest but in the ocean. So our ocean life is also dependent on the freshwater stream coming from our mountains to reproduce and create you know, incubation areas and estuaries. So forest is water is life. Yeah. And you mentioned that we see a curated forest and, and I'm really interested in, in knowing more about how that happened and what, what do you mean by that? That if I'm going hiking in Colorado, I see a curated forest. Yeah. Much of the landscape that we see is created by man and it's most obvious in like roadways and concrete and housing divisions. And then it becomes less clear as we move away from urban centers. But these areas are also curated by people, not just now, but historically, uh, sometimes by management agencies. And I think a really good example that has been in the news is the inclusion of indigenous fire techniques in California. Mm -hmm. So without... Yeah, so without those upkeeps of that relationship of clearing during certain times with indigenous knowledge of that place, you have these large um, engulfing massive fires. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a an example of a curated relationship that's been removed from the land and the impacts of that. Because people don't see it or aren't aware of it, it may not be valued because they can't see it Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not their experience. So that meditation is to set up, this is my experience that I have with the forest and hopefully open us up to hear how other people relate that may not be as familiar um, as our own personal experiences. Yeah. And in that TEDx talk that you gave a couple years ago, you, you said that local climate action first starts with our relationship with ourselves 
and, and our mm -hmm. landscapes. And, and I, I, first of all, I agree with that. And so is this what you mean um, when you were talking about um, that curation of the land? And can you talk more about, about all of that? Yeah, I feel the curation part is the extension of the seed that starts with our personal relationship. Like mm. when we're able to observe our own rhythms and our own rhymes, we're able to relate to other people better and with more clarity. And that also extends to being able to observe the rhythms and the rhymes of the weather in our area, which also influences our feelings and emotions mm. and therefore our decision-making. So when we have relationship with ourselves, we're able to relate to other beings outside of us with more clarity of what it means. And um, the curation idea kind of, it first came up by Cheryl Bryce, who's a First Nations um, in British Columbia. And I did Underground Oven research with her and so she calls it indigenous ecosystems they're ecosystems that have been curated by indigenous knowledge mm -hmm. and indigenous hands and practices over generations and millennia uh so things like if people want to harvest a resource over a long period of time it needs to be sustainable and regardless of invasive species and urbanization there will be a zest to continue that practice and early on in my training um one of my mentors said the health of the land is the health of the people yeah and so if the land is sick the people are sick and we can see a lot of people are sick so it's in relation to our food sources, um, which we eat, what they're eating, and being just aware of how we are impacted by our environment, even though we may not be conscious of those impacts. Yeah, there was, I think it was last season, we had, I had two, one was a soil scientist and one was a climate scientist or marine biologist. And the first one said, you know, healthy soil is healthy people. And then the marine biologist, biologist said, well, also healthy soil is healthy oceans. And mm -hmm. Everything is connected. I wish, I wish people would see that more because I, and I would imagine then hopefully some of their decision-making and, and things that they care about might change. Yeah. And there's a lot of opportunities and choices that we get to make every day. Mm -hmm. And some days we get to make better choices than others yeah. to give ourselves grace to improve as yeah. we learn more about ourselves and how to be better stewards. Yeah. Yeah. I get down on myself a lot for, you know, oh gosh, I'm super thirsty and I bought that single use container, but uh, maybe I should have brought in my <laughs> water bottle next time. And I really get really down on myself about little tiny things like that. But I think they actually are important because they show that you are 
thinking about the world and you're trying to grow and view yourself as part of that system, right? And mm -hmm. humans are part of nature. I think that's something we need to recognize more. Yeah. And those little things are helpful. Every person making decisions that align with their beliefs is helpful. Yeah. And also looking at bigger pictures. So just to expand that, sometimes um, in community, when we have values, they're not always carried all the way through. We'll go with single-use plastic, especially in large community venues. Yeah. And so to have grace and understanding of including people, so not having one or the other, but making room for both. So people who attend can make their own decision. Mm. It's not ideal. And maybe more people will use the big jug to mm -hmm. fill up their reusable than the plastic bottles and the people who need the plastic bottles, like the elderly, because it makes it easier for them. Right. Um, they can take it home. Yeah. So finding value throughout the whole spectrum in this time of very black and white, I very much embrace gray. Uh, like so that. that we can be kind to ourselves more, more so, so then we can be kind to other people. But is that your term, embrace the gray? It is one of my favorite colors. Yeah, <laughs> me too, actually. Yeah, um, and it's, I think the more I study and the more I read and the more I experience, the more I need to have understanding for and empathy for people's upbringing and experiences and, you know, be graceful about it. When we're able to impart grace on other people, that means that we're able to impart grace upon ourselves. And I think that's yeah. a skill that conservation and environmentalists, we can really benefit um, that type of aloha bring forward i'm yeah. always interested in how people get involved in the type of work that you're doing um so what what brought you to being a scientist and such an important person in native sovereignty and climate action i'm gonna go with curiosity curiosity yeah curiosity is really what brought me to where i am today and continues to move me forward and it was really when I moved back home to University of Hawaii, there's a class called Ethnobotany. And I was like, what's that? Yeah. And so I took it and there was a guest speaker who was a Native Hawaiian grad student who asked our generation to come and help. And so I did because I was curious. And every move I've made has been within a curious mind frame to understand better. And as I've gone through undergrad and grad school and now postdocing and assistant professor, it's really been about learning about structures and how they apply to our daily lives and how we can improve them moving forward. 
Mm. for our Native communities? How do we adapt and uplift our values um, into a governance that allows us to achieve our highest ideals as a people? Mm. So you are a key member of, at Arizona State, the Global Discovery and Conservation Science Center. Can you talk more about the mission of what that center is and, and how you play a role in it? Yeah, the Center for Global Discovery and Conservation Science leads spatially explicit scientific and technolo technological research focused on mitigating and adapting to global environmental change. So that looks like spatial data, that looks like three-dimensional replications of corals. It's oh, wow. looking at imaginative ways to approach solutions that we haven't, you know, attempted before. Mm -hmm. So there are nine different labs between Arizona and Hawaii. We have four, um, soon to be five in Hawaii, and my lab is one of them. And personally, within um, GDCS, Global Discovery and Conservation Science Center, my mission is to uplift the practices that people have with the environment and to uplift those relationships through policy. Mm. Is this something as well that the local community gets involved with, or is it just um, more of policy level stuff? The community in Hawaii, I would say is very involved and proactive in different areas. In the last 20 years, there have been specific groups that have been supported to advocate for cultural practices, ecosystems that support cultural practices. And some of those have been going on for decades. Yes, multiple decades. Wow. So it's been going on before I was born, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and will continue beyond my extent here uh, is, is my ideal um, and what I've seen. Mm -hmm. So... There are many practices, not just in the forest, but in the ocean. And prior to uh, capitalization and stores, that's how people subsisted and not just subsisted, but thrived. And those practice, practices continue today to keep us connected to our environment, literally. Yeah. Yeah. So you... You, you research in the Hawaiian forest, um, what I read was uh, plant gathering practices uh, in mm -hmm. the forest. And I'm wondering, can you talk about more about what's happening in Hawaii around forestry, around climate, around indigenous rights that are um, top of mind there? Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. Um, related to the forest, the major things are related to climate change is the shift going up the mountain. So mosquitoes having more access to native birds and extinctions continuing, um, invasive species 
getting up to higher elevations again because of increased temperatures. There's there's so much and being in Hawaii, which is the extinction capital of the nation, as well as Did you say the, extinction capital? Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, like mostly for plants. But plants, really? I did not know that. Yeah, and that's because of urbanization, um, because, which was the next line, we have a high number of endemic species, things only found here. Mm -hmm. We have, what is it, 12 of the 14 microclimates in the world. Oh my gosh. Because of the volcanic shields and the movement and the ages, the geologic ages of the island, the substrate, erosion, different nutrients are available. So there are micro pockets of species available. Um, So it's very unique Mm. within, um, like you could go across North America for like a hundred miles and be in like the same soil type. Yeah, that that's Illinois. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But here I'm at twenty five hundred feet and then I drive twenty minutes down the hill to sea level and I've gone through like seven microclimates. Wow. It's it's an so, important place then. It's an important Yeah. Yeah. To understand um speciation, genetics, a lot of that. Uh, scientists come here f- to learn about that because of the isolation. Um, things that come here, wind, wings, waves, are considered endemic. And then... Wind, um, wings and waves. I love that too. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're, you're teaching at Arizona State, but you're from Hawaii originally. Um, mm-hmm. How is that working? Are you... Um, going back and forth, or are you just state um, stationed there in where you are in Hawaii? Yeah, I'm. I'm remotely post, and I'll be teaching online remotely. So uh, we have a conference every year. I went last year; it was our first year. We just started the school last year, mm-hmm. so we're getting things together. And I'll go back for conferences, and when I get my classes up for probably field schools. And hopefully building a field school out in Hawaii. Oh, awesome. And, yeah. And I listened to you as well on a, a podcast called the Radical Narratives Podcast. I think that was like 2020. Gosh, that's three years ago now. That's crazy. And and what you said there really inspired me to more talk about um, maybe some misconceptions about Hawaii uh, indigenous cultures and rights. And that's also coming from some of the things you have been talking about and from the fact that I've been to Hawaii three times. And the last time I was there, I spoke to a native Hawaiian who was uh, pretty unhappy about where I was hiking. And they shared with me a little bit more about living there. And I'm wondering, you know, I hear about how what you're saying in terms of the forest and its importance with everything and from a mainlander not living there, I'm wondering what what can we do uh, to help the efforts that you're doing there? And maybe that good needs to go more into the history and politics of the islands. I don't know. But how can we help? How can we help you? I think 
understanding more about the history and the politics whenever we travel, no matter where it is, is helpful mm -hmm. to understand where people are at. Uh, Hawaii is no different than, which is going to sound weird, except for climate. I'll go with like Chicago. Yeah. Oh, I lived in Chicago for a little bit, for a little bit. So oh, when did you live here? Oh, 2001. Oh, God. yeah. Yeah, 2001, 2002. Much colder, much colder. Very much colder. <laughs> and similar similar things. Um, a lot of Hawaiian communities are at the fringes, are located where, you know, landfills are at, uh, on the Waianae Coast, things of that nature. Just a lot of environmental justice work would be supportive the history and relationship of Native Hawaiians, which is identified as people of lineal descent, not people who have um, driver's licenses. Those oh. are residents of Hawaii. Um, okay. there's, there's like a delineation for legal reasons and recognition within government status and things like that. So there's that's like a simple delineation, understanding that Native Hawaiians are different and distinct from Hawaii residents. So a Native Hawaiian can be a Hawaii resident. Um, yeah. I feel like, like they're I'm doing not that sure. as well, like in New Zealand, they've been pretty proactive about recognizing the Maori in New Zealand in the same way. Right, right. So this is, that's a great parlay. So the biggest <laughs> difference between um, Maori and Native Hawaiians is that Maoris have a recognized treaty with their nation. And so they get support from the government. Um, and I've been to Aotearoa, and again, it's not perfect, but mm -hmm. that structural relationship between the governance has not been formally recognized within the United States governance system. So there are things like federally recognized tribes. Native Hawaiians are not federally recognized, although there is technically a path to do it. There are a lot of questions about overthrowing of the kingdom, illegal right. occupation, and things of that nature politically on the international arena, which impacts local social and Hawaii politics. Yeah, and may basically most treaties have just been ignored, right? Right. Yeah. And Checkered technically there yeah, technically historically there wasn't a treaty with Hawaii. It's called oh the joint it's a joint resolution. I forget the number, but formally within congressional law, a joint resolution does not have the same power of law as like a bill. That's mm -hmm. been passed. It can't be passed into law. So there's that. No, oh, geez. Right. Yeah. So there's that. Um, and actually, a really good book to read um, is called A Queen's Story. And that takes you back to that time of the overthrow and is written by the queen who was overthrown. And it oh. provides some of the plantation politics, which although plantations have shut their doors the remnants of those genealogies still exist in the islands mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah. Um, well, this reminds me a little bit of, of a conversation I had with a Lakota designer last year on, on the podcast named Sadie Redwing. And she shared a lot about this kind of similar issue with where she's from and, and her people and culture and, and the land as well. And she talked about how important indigenous knowledge was and still is um, mm -hmm. and how a lot of science basically and, and designers, right, like me, ignore it. And are you able to talk more about your perspectives on this, especially connected to what you just shared about Hawaii? Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. I think the example that I had in my TEDx talk a little bit ago was related to pigs and conservation. So earlier I talked about endemic species, things that are here without the help of human hands. Mm -hmm. And pigs was an item that was brought by Polynesians, now known as Native Hawaiians, and are the number one, you know, I'll go with like bane of conservation here because oh, of really? uprooting and, you know, they, they root and then they make mosquito pits and then they spread invasive species and things like that. Simultaneously, pigs are a food source for community members as well as for ceremony. And where my dad grew up uh, in the country, the families had pigs that used to go around in the forest. This is well before there were many houses. It was very country. Nobody went out there. And one of the ways that they would manage the pigs would be by tagging their ears or mm -hmm. tagging the tail. So if anybody saw the pig, they would knew, know it, whose it was. That's like a very specific management um, practice. But there's larger things. So I for my postdoc, I worked on indigenous knowledge of drought in Hawaii. And the biggest thing I could, you know, bring out of there is we looked at traditional proverbs. We looked at traditional stories, mo'olalo. We looked at chants. And there was more talk about water than there was about drought, 10 times as much talk about water than drought. And so I think related to indigenous perspectives, besides the direct relationship between land and wind and being that conductor, it's also the viewpoint of focusing on what you need and what you have and somewhat of a positive attitude, but not toxic positivity. Right. But being realistic about this is a season, the season will end, and we know that that season may come, so we shall prepare for that season. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the important part about Indigenous knowledge is we're in a centralized governance system looking to adopt decentralized ways of being that focus on family-sized decision-making bodies and uplifting that to a macro-urban level. So understanding that, yes, important are Indigenous knowledge and experiences, and the lesson is how do we 
adapt that to our own ways of being instead of relying on other people to do this thinking or feeling or observations for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you want to see happen um, for the islands? I'll just go with love. That's a good answer. Yeah. I'll just go with love. My father has seen a lot of change and he actually moved to Arizona. Yeah. Fitting that now I go to Arizona for work sometimes. And so I understand that the change that he's seen has been great. And the change that I've seen is not as much as him, but it's still impactful. And so now I need to project on the cement, the landscape that I knew, so I can still see what's there. Yeah. And so that's happening in many of our places as, you know, change is the only constant. Yeah, so, that's true. <laughs> Every day. Yeah, one of one of the uncles I work with, um, or we just hang out, he says, um, you have to look below the peely grass. And peely grass is a grass and you can't, it's so thick. You're not sure if there's like a rock there, you're going to trip or something like that. And one time I came off of a, a trip on a boat and I saw water from someone cleaning their vessel on land go down. And this water ended up coming into the ocean and right there was all these baby fish. Oh. And so it's a reminder that even though what is above changes, what is below is still dependent on that water flow and on that life regardless yeah. of what we see today. Yeah, I heard a phrase once, it was like, as above, so below. And that kind of rings true when you say that. Yeah. Well, I'm a designer, and a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast are designers, and we make things, and we help communicate things. And what's your perspective on how maybe designers can become more involved in your work and forest restoration and beyond um, to be more allies or supporters of, of recognizing that we live in this big connected system. Read children's stories by indigenous communities. Oh, is, is, do you have a favorite? Just the ones in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just stories, but dance. Mm -hmm. Look at dances, look at dance at different communities, start with com maybe a community near you. you can go on YouTube, go online and watch their dances. What are their dances talking about? Is that dance connected to a story? What are the lessons from that story? Beyond those lessons, what do we see in the background of those stories? Mm -hmm. Those are where the the deeper lessons, because then you're talking about not just design for physicality, but socially and what that construct can look like or has and what may be missing or maybe we can put it back here or maybe it's supposed to be this instead. Yeah, well, one thing you may not know about me is that at one point, I think it was four years ago, I 
uh, thought about a career change. And I was thinking about forest restoration as something that I wanted to, to investigate more. Um, if you've recommended a few things about reading books or resources, what would you recommend someone to look into if they wanted to learn more about forest restoration? Just go to your places. The only way to learn about forest restoration is to do it. To do it. It's really the only way. The experience. So one of the sayings that I do my work by is makahana ka'ike, makahana kamana. In the work is the knowledge and in the work is the power. And I really believe that that's where the power of my work comes from is by doing the same work of the people that I work with. Yeah. To not just get their words, but to get physical understanding of like the frustrations, the problem solving, pushing through your own barriers. And in forest restoration in Hawaii, it's a little different than other places. Maybe not. We fence. Planting is the last thing we do. Uh, there's so much more work to do. Yeah. When we're planting, that's when it's done. We just have to do maintenance after that. But building fence, doing eradication of goats or cows or pigs, making sure fences are secure so things can't jump back in or dig in. And so just going to an outplanting, if people haven't been to a forest, which I believe many people haven't, it's totally fine. And you can choose your current park or look at what local organizations are at. If you're interested in forest restoration for bird habitat, you can go look at different bird organizations. If you're interested in forest restoration for food, there are different agroforestry opportunities. So forest restoration is very diverse. There's even urban forestry. We That's have true. this in Hawaii as well. So the the concepts of forest is really moving beyond the ideal of the wild and the untamed and bringing the forest down to the people so that we can be more connected to that. not in an esoteric or ethereal manner, but actually understanding how that connection is yeah is secured. Last season on, on the program, I had someone who was really into and, and worked with Afrofuturism. <clears throat> and I've been reading indigenous futurism books by native authors for three years now, because it's just been something I find truly intriguing. And, and I'm wondering, uh, when you're thinking about the future, what do you want to see from the impact of your work and research? And at one point, will you say, hey, it's successful? Yeah, I think the impact of my work and research is already successful in people that's seeing. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, that sounds weird. But I think it. if it wasn't successful, then I wouldn't continue doing it. That's if true. If I didn't good get good feedback from people or affirmations, and I don't think I would move forward because of who the research impacts. Yeah, you impacted uh, me. That's why you're on the show. So yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah, so right now I think I just mentioned it earlier. 
the vision right now is although I am in or maybe now it's because I'm in the School of Ocean Features, my goal is to bring the forest to the people, mm. to the people who can't make it to the forest so that they can still have the benefit of the sounds, of the images, of those life cycles, if anything, to maybe help regulate their own. And that's kind of what we're working on and bringing, bringing our local community members on the island out teaching or maybe more of exchange of our experiences with subsistence and policy yeah those are those are my immediate goals but those are great goals yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well, and slow steady slow and steady mm-hmm well i'm keeping track of time here trying to be mindful of your time and um, I'm coming to my question I ask everybody, and I'm actually truly excited to hear how you're going to answer this. It's a tough one. And in this question, I'm, I'm asking every guest to um, take a moment and, and switch, switch roles. And now you're the design educator, which is mainly my audience. And based on what you know and, and what you do, what would you assign a class of designers if you were their instructor, um, what would you have them do? So you've heard me talk about the connection between the mountain and the ocean. Yeah. My assignment for the class would be to create a futuristic ahupua'a, which is a piece of land from the mountain to the ocean to create sustainability mm. for now in the future. Ooh. What would be, what would be where thinking about the flow of water and the impacts on the people, we need to drink that water, bathe with that uh, water, make sure it gets back to the ocean so that we have deep ocean fisheries and freshwater fish. We've, it's a very um, insightful exercise when you're coming from an island perspective and, um, you know, so many microclimates limited access to resources our island gets two barges a week so yeah. that would be the exercises from an isolated island standpoint how would you design a futuristic sustainable society i would have no idea how to do that and i think inviting an expert like you uh to class would be um would be the first thing I would do if I was going to find something like this. <laughs> well, yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, well, Katie, it's been uh, an awesome time talking with you the past 40, 50 minutes or so. And uh, you've said some extremely insightful things that I hope the listeners uh, can take away and, and, and do something good in the world with. And... Um, I wanted to ask you again, uh, where can we find you online? You can find me at on my website, com, or I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Katie Bam, K-T-E-A-B-A-M. Wonderful. Thanks for having awesome. me, Eric. Yeah, wonderful. We'll also list uh, the podcast you were on and your TEDx talk in the show notes. So they can experience what I experienced because it was really good.
Yeah, thanks again for having me. I really appreciate your time and your really thoughtful questions. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. This podcast is co-produced by Bianca Sandico and me. A big special thanks to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding, Matul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help, Brandy Nichols and Michelle Wynn for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers. <laughs>